You are Locked On Nuggets, your daily Denver Nuggets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is up, everybody? Welcome into the Locked On Nuggets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. We appreciate you making this your first listen each and every day. We're free and available wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Adam Mades. Matt Moore has the day off. He covered for me last week, and I cover for him a little bit this week before I'm out of town at the end of the week. Um, but wanted to get into some things here. Uh, going to do a notebook edition of the pod. Going to talk about some of the things I just went through and watched today. Spent today re-watching all of the Nuggets' games since the All-Star break. And not just watching them, but watching the offensive possessions and really trying to get a sense for what's new, what's what are some of the trends. So I want to go through a notebook edition and I just dropped a brand new edition of the list. If you guys are not familiar, over at thednvr.com for DNVR members, you I every week try to make a list of plays that really stood out to me. And I talk about them. Uh, you know, I kind of like uh, put an overlay or, or um, voiceover to them, explaining what's going on in the in the play and what stands out. Today, I had twenty plays. Twenty plays. Uh, up on the list so I and I also made it available to everyone so if you go and check it out um, on the dnvr.com this one is free the rest of the ones for the year including the playoffs are not going to be free they're for dnvr members only but you can sign up for five dollars a month um, so getting into some of these notes here at the end by the way I want to talk about the NBA and how they market the league I have a, I have kind of an interesting third segment uh, that I want to get into. It's been on my mind for a while. I haven't had a great opportunity of, of when to kind of discuss this, but I think today makes for a good one. So to get into some notebooks, though, here was the first thing. As I'm watching this, these games, one of the things you have not heard from me or from anybody is that Bryn Forbes has been a defensive liability. And this is funny because the early on, like his reputation as a player, he is not a good defender. He's actually a really bad one. And one of the things that we've talked about early on in his first five, six, seven games was that teams were putting him on an island, trying to attack him. Lately, you haven't seen that. And it's not because he's become a miraculously better defender. I think one of the things we really learn every year, if you, as an analyst, this is definitely true, but I think it's also true as a fan. You learn more about the game just through experience. And by the way, this isn't just for people like you and me. I talked to Tim Conley and, and, Michael Malone about these things. Those guys are also always learning new things about the game because the game's evolving. There's new things, there are different things happening. Well, with Bryn, one of the things we've really noticed this year was that although the Denver Nuggets bench unit has good players on it or players that are capable of do doing different things, a lot of the combinations of those players that were available to them because of so many injuries, because of guys in and out of protocols early on, I know it's weird to think about because we haven't really heard health and safety protocols a whole lot lately, but early in the year, he had guys in and out of it. That unit didn't have an identity and the pieces didn't really fit together. And even in Bryden Forbes's tenure, when he first arrived before DeMarcus Cousins, before Bones Highland really got going, you know, he stood out like a sore thumb because it's like defensively, not only are teams attacking him, but the, the rotations behind him and just everybody's sort of awareness of how that unit defends together wasn't there. Over these last three games, now it has been Sacramento twice. You know, it hasn't necessarily been a murder's row of great teams. But nonetheless, you haven't seen, like you just haven't thought about, man, Bryn Forbes is really getting killed right now. And I think that that, that should tell you something. I'm really curious about Austin Rivers' minutes with the starters. If you go through the advanced lineup data and you look at net ratings, you know, with different combinations, Austin Rivers with the starters has been fantastic. And he's been fantastic both replacing Will Barton 
and replacing Jeff Green. So depending on what Denver needs, you know, if you can go a little bit smaller, you replace Jeff Green, you play Barton or Austin Rivers, basically a three-guard lineup. None of those guys are really a small forward. And then you move Aaron Gordon to the four, and that really works. You could also do it if you replace Will Barton, and you just say, hey, we're going to have to have Jeff Green out there. You're going to have to have Aaron Gordon. We have to have some size, but you get a little bit more defense from Austin Rivers. The numbers with him there have been really great. So I'm curious going forward, especially as guys get healthy, where Austin Rivers fits into the mix. Just because he seems to be, I mean, one, he is a really good defender and he's a good pick and roll defender. And we've talked about this a lot. If you have Jamal Murray, if you have Michael Porter Jr. and you have Nikola Jokic, to me, I don't know how much more offense you need. You need guys that are like, they have to be, they keep you honest. Aaron Gordon from three keeps you honest. You're not running plays to get him a three. You're not hoping that you get him a bunch of threes, but teams can't cheat off of him. I think Austin Rivers is the same way. He also has a little bit of added offense, although I personally don't really count on it. Every now and then he makes threes. He tends to be more of a, like, he gets hot guy. I don't think, I don't know what his numbers are, 35%, uh, something somewhere around there from three. But it doesn't seem like he's a 35% as in he makes three and a half out of 10. He makes like, six in a row and then misses 20 in a row. That's kind of like the type of 35% shooter is. So I don't love his offense. Like he's adding a whole lot. I just think Denver already has that, but I think he's a fantastic defender. And I think especially lately, he's done a very good job of being a lot more decisive shooting threes off of the catch, which has its own value, especially from the guard position. Like he hasn't made a ton of these where he just catches it, goes right into a shooting motion. But it doesn't matter because sometimes just having a guy willing to take those shots is the thing that keeps the defense honest and keeps rotations. And then you can grab offensive rebounds, this or that. So the numbers bear out that Austin Rivers has been very good. And I'm curious about when you get a Murray back, when you get a Michael Porter back, even going into next season, if you do retain an Austin Rivers or bring him back, he might be a guy that actually is a sneaky good fit with that starting lineup um, as sort of a um, fifth option in that group. Jokic has been four of nine in the paint, uh, non-restricted area since the All-Star break. Four of nine is a really small sample size, but that's an area he's been shooting 60% this year. That's the floater zone. That's the jump hook zone. Those are like the little shots that Jokic is maybe arguably the best of all time, at least the best big of all time from that not quite a dunk, not quite a layup, just a little bit beyond that range. He's got such great touch. Four of nine is a small sample size, but it's also just surprising because some of the shots he's missed, I mean, you remember them over these last three games, he's missed some that you're like, man, he never misses those, or it feels like he never misses them. So something to keep an eye on. It's probably just a small sample size thing. As you see as the description here, the Monte Jokic two-man game, like Monte Morris deserves some, you know, he deserves some accolades. He deserves some respect. There was Harrison Wynn posted this out. My colleague over at DNVR posted, uh, shared this out, a Bill Simmons clip earlier in this week where Bill Simmons name drops Monte as a guy that you can't count on in the playoffs or like, was he going to hit shots? Monte Morris has been fantastic for the Nuggets in his tenure, really. I mean, he's another one of these guys that Tim Conley found in the second round that hung around for way longer than second rounders usually do. In fact, Monte Morris, you almost forget he's a second rounder. That's how good he's been. He's, he's going to have, what's he been in these, the NBA now five or six years, he's going to have like a 12, 13 year career. He's that good of a player. Just, he can do so many different things. Um, but in particular, I think him and Jokic has, have really found a chemistry now that they've been playing so many minutes together. Um, last season, Murray Jokic combination had a 122 offensive rating, which is insane. This year, Monte Jokic have a 118 offensive rating. Now why this is interesting is 
Last year, the Murray-Jokic duo, you know, that was up there at the top, but it wasn't the top two-man duo. This year, we've talked about 118 offensive rating would be the best offensive rating in the NBA by a, by a wide margin. So when I know a lot of that is Jokic, the on-off numbers. We've talked about this a lot. Him with almost anybody has been great. But I think Monte deserves a little bit of accolades for being a really good running mate. And if we go on the list, there's a lot of clips of those two just working their magic together. He's in the spotlight right now because he hit two game winners. I consider him game winners. I know we had this argument. The one was definitely a game winner, right? Like the buzzer beater. But then this other one, even though it happened with 29 seconds left on the clock, it was the shot that put them up three. And it was the result, once again, of him and Jokic just having some great chemistry. And even if you go to that Sacramento game, yes, Jokic missed one shot. We Our two shots were kind of surprised he missed. And yes, he missed two free throws. But a lot of what Denver did down the stretch was Monte Jokic two-man game, just like it was with Murray. Obviously, it's different. Murray's a more dynamic scorer. If you get a switch, Murray knows how to take advantage of it. He's the better player. But Monte, the chemistry he has with Jokic and the way those two read each other um, has been just as impressive in terms of chemistry, not necessarily in effectiveness. And he's just been so great about that. I also think, by the way, Monte's probably the best player. When teams help, help can come from a different a bunch of different places. The most common place is teams will send it from one pass away. So the guy enters the ball and you try to space him at like the top of the key. That guy will rotate over. Oftentimes, because it's easy to rotate on the backside, if the nearest defender is the one that goes and doubles the post, one, you can like sandwich the, the guy straight on. So in theory, you should be able to like trap the ball in the block. But the, the rotations on the backside become easier. You're just basically like a wheel over. So that's what a lot of teams will do. If Monte is that guy one pass away, I think he's the best on the team. Maybe even when you consider like Murray and MPJ, those guys are really good, especially on the kick out, like the reverse passes but that one pass away it's a very specific type of, of of pass a very specific type of shot and to me monte is my preferred guy i would have there so kind of a niche little thing um you know that second unit one of the things that really stands out now i'm i'm sort of the the i don't want to be the debbie downer about the second unit because i'm really buying into it i think it's been a fantastic unit them being this plus 27 and plus 10 and and, and being so dominant out of the all-star break I think it is a sign of things to come. I think Denver has fixed their bench, but I don't think it's the best bench in the NBA. One of the things that happened, especially as I go back and rewatch this Portland game, is that DeMarcus Cousins is seven feet tall and 300 pounds. He's, ma he's massive. Jermichael Green is tall. Portland started a guy at center that was six foot nine in, in, in uh, Drew Eubanks, and then they brought guys in the off of the bench as the backup bigs who were even smaller. And that's what stood out so much to me is, yes, DeMarcus Cousins was absolutely dominant. Yes, Jermichael Green was absolutely dominant. But those guys had such an enormous, on second look, such an enormous size advantage that I'm not surprised they dominated to the extent that they did. I think I've made this point that DeMarcus Cousins and Nuggets are 10-0 and 0 since he joined the team. But he's actually been a negative, meaning the bench has been a negative because he plays every minute Jokic doesn't and never together, so at least so far. The he's been a negative six out of 10 times. So four times he's been a positive, two times a big one, a 10 and a 27. The other times like plus one, plus three, something like that. So I, I, I'm just putting a little bit of cold water on it, even though I believe in it. I just don't think it's going to be as dominant. And I don't think people should expect it to continue to be as dominant as it has been over these last three games. 
you got Oklahoma City on deck, you got New Houston coming in, and you got New Orleans. So they actually might be dominant for the next three games or so. But at some point, I do think they're going to run into a lineup that's just a little bit more traditional and have bodies to match up with them. And I wouldn't be surprised if they they have a bad game ahead of them somewhere here. Um, loving the Monte hype. I'm reading the comments here. It's hard running this solo, a, a live show uh, solo. When it's a podcast, it's not that bad. But when it's a live show, there's so many things to pay attention to. That's why I'm a little off my game here. But loving the Monte hype. He deserves all the praise. It's true, man. He, uh, he really has been great. Why don't we take a break? On the other side, though, I do want to get into more of these things that I have on the list. Again, become a member. Go to thednvr.com, and you can check out all the video clips. But first, want to tell you about Bet Online. Football might be over this season, but basketball is full steam ahead for both pro and college hoops. March Madness, by the way, one of the best days of the year to, to, to gamble, to sports gamble, and that is right around the corner. Um, for all the latest odds, totals, per player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, betonline.net is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. BetOnline remains the best spot for all of your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline.net is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds. Uh, right to the Olympic coverage and information. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and actions. BetOnline, where the game store starts. Be right back. All right, back here, segment two. Thanks for making Locked On Nuggets your first listen. For your next listen, check out the Locked On Now podcast, nightly recaps of every NBA game with analysis from our local experts. It's free and it's available wherever you get your podcast. Kind of a news little channel there um, for you. If AG's jumper is consistent, it's going to be scary. Uh, I think AG's jumper is what it is. I do have a note on the list. It actually comes from the Orlando game that happened right before the break. Um, where I'm talking about one area, one type of three-pointer he's added to, to his repertoire. And what it is is, you know, Denver runs a lot of those plays where they'll bring up Monte for, for like a flare screen for, uh, for Aaron Gordon. And defenses will go so far under. In fact, Monte is so great. Like they've been running this action for so many years. He knows that defense are going to try to go under that sort of like back screen. So what he'll do is they'll fake, they'll keep pushing it lower and lower. So instead of it being at the three-point line, it'll be all the way at like the foul line or even in the paint. So if a defender tries to go under that, Aaron Gordon will just pop out. Instead of cutting towards the basket, he'll pop out to the wing and then he'll have like 15 feet of space to get a shot off. So it's a very comfortable shot. And he's gotten really good at that type of, of jumper. And yes, you look, you're fair to worry about AG's jumper in the playoffs as I see a comment here from Jay, uh, Jay Childers. Because again, he's a variance type of guy. He's 35% three-point shooter. You don't want those guys taking a lot. You hope to be able to put yourself in position to where you can really punish teams if they're going to allow him. You don't want it to be just like, oh, they're going to sit in the paint. He's going to take threes. You want to be able to stack the court in a way that not only do you have a good opportunity of him hitting 35% of these or whatever, but you also put the defense in bad position to rebound, bad position to get out and transition and all these different other things. So I, I'm encouraged with it. A thing that's really surprised me about the second unit, Bryn Forbes, for, actually two things. Number one, Bryn Forbes has surprised me in that I, I think of all the players, much has been made about Bones Highland not knowing the playbook. I have a play on the list where Bryn Forbes doesn't know the play and Bones does this really nice job of not only directing him on where he's supposed to go, but when he screws up the play and you could see Jokic gets mad, he like 
drops his head. I think it's a thing with Bryn Forbes that he actually kind of is still really trying to learn the rhythm of this offense and some of the play calls, especially when he's with Jokic. But Bones not only recognizes it, he fixes it, meaning he goes like the play calls for this cross screen for Jokic, this little wedge screen. It's one of the Denver's plays. It's been their playbook since 2017, 2016-17, where Jokic then comes to the block. It's a play to get him the ball, a touch on the block. Well, Bones sees that Bryn Forbes misses it, and he sprints into position to set the screen for Jokic, saving the play. And it's just one of those things where it demonstrates that not only does Bones know the play that from his perspective, he knows it from Bryn's perspective, and he understands it conceptually enough so that when somebody screws it up, he's like, I know what has to happen now for us to be able to get back on track. And it's a little thing, but it's a clip worth watching because of, you know, it's just with Bones, this is what it is. Like the game being second nature is a thing that, you know, that's when you know you're over the rookie hump. I don't think he's there yet, but on that specific play, uh, he did a really good job. It was number three on the list. Um, Aaron Gordon, so much has been made about the chemistry between Jokic and Aaron Gordon. Um, AG, like all the players on Denver's roster, but AG in particular now that he's a year into this, he's gotten so good at learning how to force switches with Jokic and not just for switches, but his versatility as an, as just as a player it is it compounds when you do get a switch. So in this play, Eubanks is guarding Jokic. He's their biggest guy. They get an action with the two of them where Eubanks gets switched out onto Gordon. Begrudgingly, he's trying not to, but Gordon and Jokic do a good job of forcing it. So then Gordon goes to the wing. Jokic is inside, and Jokic has the ball in the post, and he kicks it out to Gordon to draw Eubanks out to the perimeter. Aaron Gordon just blows right by him because, again, even though Eubanks is only six foot nine, Aaron Gordon's much more dynamic big as he is for most power forwards or most centers. So if a center gets center gets switched out onto him, Aaron Gordon is skilled enough to be able to take most of those guys off the dribble. He does it. He gets into the paint. But then what's great is he makes a great pass. So not only does he force the switch, not only does he attack the closeout when the kickout comes, but he breaks down the defense and then gets a nice drop off to Jokic. And it's it would be different like if you compare that to Jermichael Green, who's a good player, but can Jermichael Green beat Eubanks off of the dribble, collapse the defense, and then throw this like wraparound pass to Jokic for the drop-off? Probably not. Maybe once every now and then, but it's not a thing he can do consistently. And again, Aaron Gordon has the size and physicality of a Jermichael Green. Like he's big. He can punish guys inside in the post on the block, but he can also play like a guard. And I think it's part of why he fits so, uh, so nicely. And then... He was really good in these two Sacramento games attacking Harrison Barnes, which is surprising because Harrison Barnes is a big guy too, like 6'8", but Aaron Gordon just physically so much more powerful than him. And he did a good job in transition of basically face up, like in transition, full head of steam, just attacking him, crossovers, just going right at him and then getting into the paint and then turning his back and backing down. So he would attack him as a face up game. If he could blow by him, he would, but I don't think he really did that ever. He just got him on his heels, got into the paint, and then backed him down from there and, and used his strength. And it was really, really great to see. Um, one thing, though, if I could change Aaron Gordon's game, he just doesn't dunk on guys. And it's weird, man. Jeremy Grant had the same thing. Like there's there's a play I show in this clip where Harrison Barnes has to rotate over on a pick and roll all the way to the rim. And it's a perfect opportunity like to stop Jokic. And Jokic drops it off for what I actually I think it's Monte Morris drops it off for what you think would be a tomahawk dunk. But Aaron Gordon just stops for some reason, like 10 feet away from the hoop. And instead of going up for a dunk, he dribbles it out to the corner and then swings in. It's just one of those things where it's like you're so athletic. You could jump from anywhere. Harrison Barnes is completely out of position. 
he's going to jump out of the way. Uh, maybe he's saving it. Maybe in the playoffs, we will see a more aggressive, like reckless. You think about players like Amadou Diallo, even Jeff Green to a little bit. Like there are certain players, John Morant's the best example of this. They just throw their bodies at the rim. They maximize their athleticism. Aaron Gordon, for some reason, just doesn't seem to do that. Um, so I've talked a lot about how Bryn Forbes has not been a very good shot creator. Going through the tape over these last three games, I'm actually surprised at how well Bryn Forbes has done in that regard. Like he's made a couple nice passes that I just didn't think he had in his bag. Now, I still don't think he's a great one, but he's surprised me. And I have to kind of open my mind now to, hey, in a system where the ball's popping and that second unit, by the way, has gotten the ball popping sometimes. It's actually been very impressive. In a system where the ball's popping, he's capable of attacking a closeout and making a, a fairly complex read from time to time. Um, let me see here. What else do I got? Uh, well, Barton also has a great chemistry with Jokic. I mean, Barton, he's obviously prone to taking some really bad shots or trying to get a little too thirsty, but, um, his, him and Jokic have a lot of these little things, not necessarily two man game, like pick and roll, but just things in transition where they kind of like, you can just tell they have the like head nod. We know exactly what we're going to do here. And he, a lot of the best passes to Jokic come from Will Barton, like where, where you're, uh, um, you know, where you watch it and you're kind of like, oh, wow, that was pretty, pretty neat. Um, <laughs> I like this. I like the people that are up so late. Hey man, this is our, this industry. Some people are surprised because I'm recording this at about 12 o'clock midnight here in Denver. This is kind of the, how it goes, uh, as a writer, you're often working till two, three in the morning. Um, I love, I've, I've mentioned this on Twitter. If you guys have followed me long enough, the people that have followed me over from Denver stiffs and for all the different things I've done. I am a huge proponent of dunker spot gravity and the nuggets this season have not had guys playing the dunker. If you don't know, the dunker is basically the baseline outside of the paint uh, in high school. You used to call it the short corner. Um, it's in the NBA. It's the dunker spot because the player that plays there usually is looking for a drop off pass and then a dunk or an offensive rebound. Denver this year, a couple trends. One, they haven't been great offensive rebounding. Well, the dunker spot is an offensive rebounder spot. But one of the reasons I think they haven't, one, placed players there too much, and two, it hasn't been as effective is oftentimes the players that are in the corners are Jeff Green, Austin Rivers, Faku Campazzo, uh, Will Barton, who's Will Barton can shoot the corner three. But if you replace those guys with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., then all of a sudden I think the defense gets spread to the corner and that dunker spot now has a different gravity. What I think is happening is if you have Austin Rivers in that corner, you sink in, you you take away that dunker, you you put a second body basically on that dunker so the player guarding the dunker can step up and stop the short roll, and then you you sink in. And if you give a kick out to the corner for Austin Rivers, run him off the line, like you don't want to just give him catch and shoot wide open, go ahead and take that, but you're going to close out on him and make it a contested corner three, and I think teams will live with it. Um, but Denver has, with that second unit, started to get players in the dunker, Bryn Forbes obviously can knock down the three. Bones Filan can knock down the three. Um, so you're starting to get a little bit more gravity in the corners, and you're also being putting Jamichael Green there. But I, I do think it's one of those things that we talk about where can Denver improve offensively. Michael Porter, by the end of the month, hopefully is back in that corner, and all of a sudden Aaron Gordon's going to be underneath the basket just punishing teams on offensive rebounds and on drop-offs. Um, what else do I have here? Jokic is passing. I, I will say Jokic out of the break scoring has been a little shaky. His passing has been incredible. 
all three games, he has multiple passes where the window Jokic always does like, Oh, Jokic has been good passing. He's always good passing his he's threaded the needle more frequently in these three games than he does even on average. So even for him, I think his, his passing has been a cut above. Um, and it's just something to watch. It's funny. I was seeing Jamal Murray. I finally watched him on all the smoke with um, Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson. And he was talking about how he thinks the bet he's like, Jokic is still getting better. Like the best is still to come. And I agree. Like you watch some of these and you're like, yes, Jokic has always been throwing great passes. Jokic has been orchestrating the offense, but it is possible that he's actually throwing better strikes right now on some of these, like where the, where the, the, the window is this open, the basketball is this big, the window is this open and he gets it. He threads the needle somehow. He had one to Monte Morris. That was just absolutely insane. I did see the play where bones Highland rolled his ankle. He actually did it twice. So he did it once in the first quarter um, where he steps on Davion Mitchell's foot. And you can see that he it's not really a roll, but you could tell it tweaks his foot and he kind of limps after that. And I know this one, like ankle and foot pain. These are things are all connected. That one looked like a tweak where he could play through it. He plays the rest of the game. Then in the fourth quarter, he tweaks it again. It's that same ankle. I'm guessing it's a little bit weak. And he just stepped He doesn't even step on anybody. He just rolls it just from planting. Um, finishes that game, tried to play through it. I think it's a good sign that he tried to play through it um, because typically speaking, if it was a real bad ankle sprain and he's going to be out for weeks, you probably wouldn't try to just, hey, let's try it out one time. So I'm hopeful that this is probably more of a like one week or less type injury, but it is noteworthy that he obviously rolled it twice in that one game, tried to play the next one, couldn't, and then sat out the rest of the game. So we'll see if he plays on Wednesday. By the way, Nuggets practice tomorrow. I won't be there. I'm recording a show. I'm recording The Void with uh, Kevin O'Connor on the Ringer Podcast Network. So uh, you should keep an eye out for that one. I know everybody's kind of hyped right now about Jokic and with this Porter news. So, um, you know, excited to do that one. Um, do I have anything else here? Jokic had a left. I put a sky hook that he had with his left hand. That was just too good. Uh, I had to put it on the list because it was such a sexy play. Sometimes I love this. Um, 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 I see some people here that are talking about going to the DNVR bar. Definitely, man. March 26th, uh, we will have our party bus from the DNVR bar to the Nuggets game versus Oklahoma City Thunder, which, by the way, I think Michael Porter plays in that game. I think he does. It's possible it's even his first game. I think he might be back a little bit before that. But March 26th, I think Michael Porter will be there. You can buy tickets on the DNVR.com. Why don't we take our last break? On the other side, I want to give a quick little speech about the NBA and how they are marketing and how they are failing to market, like how the NBA can save itself. Can Like there's this one, the soul of the NBA, like the way they market it has to change. And I think there's a reason, uh, a, a way to sort of illustrate this. That'll be nice. But first, I want to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. There's an ever-increasing number of makes and models. It's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all of the parts you need. So rather than go scrolling up and down the aisles, did I miss it? Did I not see it? Instead, just go to rockauto.com and you have access to thousands of parts right there at your fingertips. Um, you could save money too. They Why choose to spend 30, 50, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store? Uh, for an example, a Honda Odyssey fuel pump is 353 from a chain store. It's 216 from rockauto.com. It's a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years. And they've got everything you need, brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet. So they got all kinds of stuff for your car. Check it out. So go to rockauto.com, 
right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck right locked on in your in the how did you hear about us box so they know that we sent you amazing selection reliably low price prices all the parts your car will ever need rockauto.com i'll be right back all right final segment here if you guys have any questions you can throw those in right now um and and i'll try to get to those but i i was thinking like over this week you know the nba is having a hard time figuring out its identity its soul right now like LeBron James has been the face of this league for really most of my adult life. I mean, he's, what is it, year 19 now? For most of that, he's been, if not 1A, you know, 1B, Kobe Bryant for a, a, a portion there, Steph Curry, obviously now. But LeBron James has been the guy. And to be honest with you, LeBron has been the best player in the NBA for probably 10 of those 19 years, if not more. Like, I would say he's probably been unquestionably the most talented and most dominant player in the NBA for at least 10 of those years, and then had some share of the best player for, for a lot of that. But here's the thing. In the 1980s, you had the Lakers and the Celtics. You had Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, two players. You had this rivalry, and that was the storyline that you sold, and that's what saved the league. It's got all these television deals, and it's what started it. When Michael Jordan came along, he became the guy, and his career was a storybook, 91, 92, 93, 96, 97, 98. The NBA told the story that Michael Jordan was greater than the sport and that the league was his, that his dominance was so great that it actually was, was more, it's a team sport, but it was really the one guy sport. And guess what? For Michael Jordan in the 1990s, that was largely true. It wasn't completely true. He played with some Hall of Famers. He played with some great players. Scottie Pippen was a great player. Uh, Horace Grant, people don't realize, was a great player. Ron Harper was a great player. Dennis Rodman, one of the all-time great defenders. Like, he had great talent around him. But Michael Jordan was such a transcendent player, and it was at a time when the NBA had some big names. I mean, you had, uh, you know, Carl Malone was obviously really big. You have... Uh, Charles Barkley was really was a great player. Like you had guys challenging him, but Michael Jordan was a cut above all of those guys. After Michael, there was this moment after he retired in '98, and I know he came back with the Wizards, but after he retired in '98, there was this like, what do we do now? We've just spent ten years, and not just the NBA, their league partners, including their television partners at the time, it was NBC, but also their marketing. Like Nike and the NBA were synonymous with each other. That was the NBA was Nike. Nike just spent 10 years telling everybody, be like Mike, it's all him, Gatorade, another one of these ones. Like all of the marketing was it's the player and it's this one guy. Charles Barkley was big, all these other guys were big, but they were one one hundredth of what Michael Jordan was. When he left, you had this generation of, of Kobe and, and, and Iverson and Vince Carter, and you had some great Tracy McGrady, you had some great players, but I think the NBA was trying to say who's next. Who's the next guy? And I think this was the flaw. First of all, I think it was a flaw with Jordan, but he was so great. And oftentimes when things are happening, like for the first time, the money's pouring in. You're like, why question it? This is what we're doing. But Jordan was unique. Jordan was completely unique. And the NBA at that time was unique. Basketball has been gained in popularity so much over the last 30 years that now we are at a point right now where I don't think there is a one great player. And I actually don't think it's been that way for a long time. I think maybe... You could be going on about eight years. I think back in 2013, LeBron James was the greatest player in the league. And I think you it was pretty easy to say like, hey, man, he actually is so great that just him 
and then like a healthy or an average supporting cast, you're going to have like a top two, three team. But after that, you know, they lost to the 2014 Spurs. And I'm always shocked when people don't talk about this more, about how great that team was. It was almost like the story was LeBron lost. Not that the Spurs team was great. Then you have the Warriors come in and people just don't know what to make of it. We have this MVP conversation going on right now, and it's about whose league is it? Who's the best guy? Is it Giannis? Is it Embiid? Is it Jokic? Here's the thing. Everybody has been trained to think about the NBA in terms of the Jordan era. Like, who is the one guy who's got the crown? Technically, who has the crown right now is Giannis. He won the NBA Finals last year. He scored 50 points in the decisive game. He's on top of the world. But Giannis is not. I love Giannis. But Giannis is not like the guy with everybody below him from like a talent and impact standpoint. He The league is just so good right now that you have a Joel Embiid, you have a Nikola Jokic, you have a Giannis, you have a Steph, you have a LeBron still, even though he's you know not looking so great right now. You've got a Ja Morant who's on the rise. You've got a Luka Doncic. You've got all these guys. And I think the NBA and especially the NBA's media and advertisement partners are still trying to sell it as this one there's a top dog, and then there's everybody below them. And it's just not the way the NBA works. And I think it, it so much of the NBA discourse is spinning its wheels, it, it, not going anywhere, thinking about this concept of, like, who is it? Who is the guy? League's too good. And I think it will forever be too good. I don't know if we will have another Michael Jordan or another LeBron James-type player who is the guy who is head and shoulders above everyone else. You look at the Western Conference right now. You've got a Phoenix Suns team, which, by the way, is the number one team in the NBA, and they don't they don't have like a first team All NBA player. I don't think. I don't think there'll be a first team All NBA player coming off of Phoenix, and they're number one. You look at you go to the other side. You got the Chicago Bulls and the Miami Heat. Similar story. Like DeRozan will be first team All NBA, but you got Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, and it's not because the league is diluted. It's the opposite. The league is so good that you can now have 10 different teams that all are good enough to be title contenders and all have players on there that are capable of making the best player, whatever the best player might be, look bad on any given night. And I just think that's what's really different about the league right now. So how does the league get out of this? I don't know the answer to that, but all of these conversations we have about the MVP or this or that, I think is failing to understand that basketball never was supposed to be a one-person sport. One player can be this can be great. But right now, we are no longer in the Jordan era where I'm not – this is where the old heads are going to get really mad at me. Because I think 90s – I when I'm talking about previous eras, I, I'm a big believer in the guys in the 60s built off of the 50s. And the guys in the 70s built off of the 60s. Like, the guys today are great at basketball because they learned from all of the generations. They are the result of decades and generations of the game evolving and taking from them taking from previous generations and standing on their shoulders. So when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not insulting the 90s. I'm just saying that I think things have evolved. You know, there weren't a ton of international players. First of all, first off, there were fewer people on earth in 1990. And there were fewer people that were training for basketball professionally in 1990, in large part because it just hadn't gone fully international yet. Yes, they had leagues, but we all know the story of the dream team. There were teams in Europe professionals in Europe that were getting autographs from the dream team before the game or after the game or trying to shake hands at the foul line because they're like, wow, these guys are so much better than us. Now you open up the NBA to 
millions, hundreds of millions of people in Europe. So now the pool of talent that you're pulling from is greater. But not only that, you get cultural influences instead of just American basketball. Like we talk about East Coast basketball or New York basketball or L.A. basketball or, or whatever. Big Ten basketball, like the Heartland basketball produces like big bodied, strong guys. You have these different things just regionally in the U.S. But when you open that up now, all of a sudden, now you have a Serbian uh, or a Balkan style of basketball training and you have a Lithuanian style of basketball training. And now you go to South American and Argentinian. You're just opening up all kinds of talent. And now the 100th best basketball player in the world is so significantly better, in my opinion, so significantly better than the 100th best basketball player in 1992. And why I bring this up is, again, I'm talking about Michael Jordan, as great as he was, and I still think he's the greatest player to ever grace the earth. I still think Michael Jordan's number one all-time player like, that I've ever witnessed. But he no longer now, if he was in today's NBA, no longer would get the nights where it's like, I'm on a team where all of those guys are so far below me that I, I'm just going to be able to do whatever I want. Now you have it to where you might have to play a Giannis one night and a Luca the next night and a John ja Morant the next night and a Steph Curry the next night and all of these different types. So again, I just think the NBA has lost itself with trying to find the next who is the guy. We're in a league, right? we're in an era right now and I think it'll last probably forever going forward where there's that best player label is going to go back and forth every single year. And I think that's a great thing. So we have any questions here uh, before I got out of here? It doesn't look like it. That was it for today. Um, Matt Moore should be back with me, if not tomorrow, certainly Wednesday night as we recap the Nuggets game uh, against the Thunder. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you next time.